this is Brennan Spiegel, co-editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology, together with Dr. Brian Lacey of Mayo. It's my great pleasure for this month's podcast to speak with Dr. Lauren Lane, who is Professor of Medicine and Chief of Digestive Diseases at Yale and the primary author of the new guideline on management of upper GI bleeding. So thank you, Lauren, so much for being with us today. Thanks very much. It's great to be here to discuss my favorite topic, GI bleeding. Well, Lauren, I've been hearing you talking about GI bleeding since I was a medical resident back when you were at USC for the first part of your career, and I was at Cedar sinai and you would come over and give grand rounds. And I remember seeing this person up there who had this incredible command of the literature and was one of the first people I ever met who was really thinking about systematic reviews and meta-analysis within the context of GI. And Really, that legacy continues today, almost 30 years later, with this guideline. I want to take a moment to thank you for all the contributions you've made to our field, not just in gastroenterology, but in other topics as well. And I've had the pleasure of working with you on many occasions in the past. On behalf of our readership, thank you for all of your leadership in our field. Thanks very much. That's nice to say. And as you said, as we developed these guidelines, we did a number of systematic reviews and meta-analysis to you know, get all the current information and evidence available to guide us in making these recommendations. Yeah, and I should also mention that you didn't write them alone. Uh, Alan Barkin is a co-author, John Saltzman, Miriam Martel, and of course, Gregoris Leontiaitis, who's done incredible work with systematic review meta-analysis uh, for our journal, an unbelievable methodologist. So you had a great team working with you on this guideline. Absolutely. They were wonderful to work with. And so again, as you said, Gregoris as a tremendous methodologist and meta-analysis and the grade methodology, as well as the other authors, all just superb to work with. So it was really a tremendous joy. And hopefully the product also was quite good, I think, with the group of people we had. Well, I have to say it comes through in the guideline, having read through it. And those who are listening, we're going to do our best to get through this document in a podcast, but really recommend that you take some time to sit down with this document. It's beautifully written. It's really well laid out, very clear, and it's uh, authoritative. And it's really the gold standard right now for the evidence and for practice management of upper GI bleeding. So why don't we jump into it? As I said, there are many recommendations in this guideline, and we won't go through all of them today, but why don't we start naturally at the top, which is a patient comes into the hospital, has uh, upper GI bleed, or at least we think they do. Often we're not 100% sure until we get in there with the scope, but we suspect there's acute upper GI bleeding. And, you know, the guidelines both in 2012 and now emphasize the importance of risk assessment, which is, you know, in my experience, to be honest, I don't know how often this is actually done in clinical practice where somebody pulls out the Blatchford score, the old Rock Hall score in the old days, or even the Cedars-Sinai score going back before that, but and actually calculates this and makes a decision. So tell us what is the Blatchford score and how should we be using it in clinical practice? You're right. I think first, I do agree with you that in real practice, I think this isn't used as all that frequently. And I think that we do need to move to this though in the future. As you know, there's a variety of risk stratification scores and probably the one that's best validated and most widely used as I'll talk about is the Blatchford or the Glasgow Blatchford score. And although we would like to use these risk stratification scores to predict both high and low risk, their major utility turns out probably at this point to identify really low risk people people who have very low likelihood of needing any intervention, of needing transfusion, of dying. And at this point, our guideline and others suggest that if we can identify these very low-risk patients, we can send them home right from the emergency department in a safe manner. They can be followed as an outpatient, and we save a lot of money while not in any way sacrificing safety. 
So you are correct that the Blatchford score is a little complex if you were going to do it manually. It has a number of different factors. I'll just tell you as an aside, our goal going forward is and we're doing this now, is developing machine learning models that basically extract in real time information from the electronic medical record while the person's in the emergency department, and then provide actually risk stratification and kind of decision support telling the doctor in the emergency room that this patient is or isn't very low risk and therefore perhaps could go home or should be admitted. That's our goal in the future so that you won't have to go through manually doing all the calculations. Yeah, that makes sense. It's not a terribly complicated equation, but it still is an equation and requires inputs. And it does make sense that really the emergency room staff be the first ones to have access to this because they're the ones who are making a decision about whether to send somebody home or admit them to the hospital. And the bias has historically been to admit patients because, you know, no one wants the medical legal responsibility of sending somebody home who ends up exsanguinating. So you kind of talk about that in the guideline. Um, essentially, the negative, we really talk about sensitivity and specificity. I'm thinking about also in terms of the sort of negative predictive value. And without getting into too much about the two by two table and sort of epidemiology, one of the issues that you kind of wrestle with in the guideline is there are going to be rare false negatives where, if I'm remembering this correctly, the Blatchford scale says, nah, nothing's going to happen. You can send them home and then something happens. And that's everyone's worst nightmare. So it sounds like you guys sort of wrestled with, does it need to be airtight, 100% guaranteed or 99% or just how confident can we be if somebody scores zero or one on that Blatchford scale that we can really send them home? Yeah, you're absolutely right. We want to avoid false negatives. That is, we want to avoid just what you said, the Blatchford score saying the patient has no risk sending them home and it turns out they do re-bleed or, or die, um, require hemostatic intervention, that kind of thing. So what we wrestled with is, do we want to actually have a situation where there's almost 0% chance of false negatives? which actually you can get pretty much with a Glasgow Blatchford score of zero or with a machine learning model that we developed. Or are you willing to accept a 1% false negative rate, in which case you can have a Glasgow Blatchford score at zero to one. The advantage of that is you can send a lot more patients home than if you restrict it to the very sensitive, 100% sensitivity, zero false negatives. So we wrestled with that. And again, one point of a guideline like this is readers can make their own judgment. So if you think you want 100% sensitivity, go for it, that's totally reasonable. We chose 99%. Some people might even say you could have a lower sensitivity. I think the point we were trying to make is, here's the evidence. You as a physician and a patient can together decide what is more important to you. Do you really want to go home, even taking a little more risk, or do you want absolutely no risk and therefore stay in the hospital unless you have virtually zero risk of having a problem? And that's the art of medicine. We all make decisions every day, and some are clearly supported by RCT data, uh, some are not, some are supported by guidelines, but there's always room for interpretation. And it's really helpful to think about it that way, that if they score zero, that means there's pretty much 100% chance they're not going to believe But if they score one, it sounds like that's kind of the wiggle room where maybe the clinicians can sort of make their own call depending upon, let's say, how far away from the hospital does this patient live, or what's their insurance? And Naturally, we're thinking about health economics in all of this as well, but from a clinical perspective, we just want to make sure our patients are safe when we're discharging them. Absolutely right. I agree absolutely with that. Okay. So let's say somebody's admitted to the hospital, they have a Blatchford score greater than one, and now they've made it into the hospital. We're going to scope them. So a few questions naturally come up. The first is, what should we do before we scope them? So the guideline addresses a few things, but in particular, the use of erythromycin as a promotility agent, and also quite a bit about whether we should be using proton pump inhibitors 
prior to endoscopy. Frankly, in my experience, almost always happens. It's sort of just part of the admission orders. But, you know, what's the evidence that they work? So you can take either one of those. And- well, I, let's go through both quickly, if that's okay. Yeah, um, yeah. Erythromycin is interesting because I think this guideline is a little bit different than some prior guidelines, but we found a meta-analysis in nine total trials. And when we reviewed those, we did feel that it was probably reasonable. It was a conditional or weak recommendation, not a strong recommendation, but nevertheless, a, a recommendation suggesting infusion of erythromycin before endoscopy. And the reason for that is not that it necessarily improves the most important outcomes like death and further bleeding, but it did appear to to reduce um, the need for a second endoscopy and shorten hospital stay. So again, somewhat of an economic argument perhaps, but most people would probably like to get out of the hospital sooner and not have to go through a second endoscopy. And so the concept is, as a promotility agent, it may actually allow a higher diagnostic rate or diagnostic yield on the first endoscopy. And for that reason, we did suggest it. Now, proton pump inhibitors, as you say, that's probably a controversial area. And if you look at prior guidelines, all agree on what the evidence is, but they interpret this evidence differently. So some guidelines have suggested that you should give PPIs and make that a strong recommendation. Other guidelines have strongly suggested you shouldn't give PPIs. And what is the evidence? Well, the bottom line is the evidence indicates that pre-endoscopic PPIs do not improve clinical outcomes like further bleeding, mortality, need for surgery. But what they do do is downgrade the stigmata. So for instance, you'll have less active bleeding when you endoscope the patient. And that translates into a a modest reduction in the number of patients who require endoscopic therapy. But it doesn't make any difference in the studies that are available in clinical outcomes. So it depends how you judge that. Do you believe it's important to reduce the number of people who require endoscopic therapy? If so, then that would be a reason to use it. If you really require that patients have an improvement in clinical outcomes, such as further bleeding or death, then there isn't a reason to do that. And I can give you more information, but we can stop there for the moment. I guess um, you know one argument might be just from a resource utilization standpoint, we're using fewer resources if we're not having to pull out hemoclips or very expensive hemostatic powder sprays, for example, or whatever, are the upfront costs of pre-endoscopic PPIs offset by some savings from not having to do those procedures? That's an important point and clearly right up your alley, Brennan. And basically, you're absolutely right. So we actually mentioned that cost of the PPI in everybody versus the reduction in cost by not doing endoscopic therapy, which is more expensive, but in a minority of patients needs to be considered. And that probably is variable in different health systems around the country and around the world. The problem is, although there were economic analysis, we actually didn't find any that really used what we thought were the appropriate data from randomized controlled trials. So we actually weren't able to find strong evidence that would guide that decision. But you are correct. I think that is something you have to balance. We did say, I will point out, that in patients who aren't going to get an endoscopic therapy or in whom it will be delayed, based on some indirect evidence from randomized controlled trials, we do suggest that that patient should receive PPIs probably. Mm -hmm. So one of the benefits of these kinds of discussions and guidelines in general is to identify gaps in the literature and opportunities for research. So anyone listening here wants to do a cost-effectiveness analysis that's uh, up to date with the latest data, maybe that's an area to focus on, on this pre-endoscopic PPIs. Okay, another area that's definitely near and dear to my heart is the timing of endoscopy. The very first paper I ever published as a medical resident was entitled uh, Endoscopic Therapy Upper GI Bleeding is Sooner Better. That used to show up in older guidelines. I see that it's been dropped from this one. I won't take that personally. It's probably because it's ancient now. And we do know now that sooner is probably better. But the question always comes up, how soon? Is this like door-to-needle time with acute myocardial infarction? 
Do we need to get people in within 12 hours and six hours, 24 hours? And, and can we bring people in too soon? Kind of brings up this question of we rush right in, we see a huge placental clot that we can't manage getting to the earlier discussion about erythromycin. So this is a big topic, but maybe you can just give us your high level thoughts and what do the guidelines say about this? Absolutely. And I do remember your work on that, Brendan, but you are correct that there has, I think, been an evolution in how we view this. I think for some time, people have suggested early endoscopy should be done, meaning within 24 hours. And that's based on a number of older observational studies that show that if you wait more than 24 hours, it appears that things are worse in terms of length of hospital stay, the need for surgery, and in one study, even mortality. But the question that has been raised in the higher risk person, should we be doing endoscopy more rapidly? For instance, older guidelines, including the prior ACG guidelines, suggested within 12 hours in high-risk people. And a number of guidelines have suggested high-risk people, such as those with hemodynamic instability, or perhaps those with comorbidities, such as cirrhosis, should be done within 12 hours. But I do want to tell you the evidence for that was to be kind scant. And I think we now have more information that has suggested to us that we actually should not at this point be making that distinction. There is pretty good evidence that within 24 hours is beneficial, but the evidence that earlier is better and that and or that earlier is better in the high risk is not there. One of the best studies was just published very recently by the very good Hong Kong group in the New England Journal, and they showed that doing endoscopy, even in a high-risk group of patients within six hours of GI consult, had no benefit over those who had later endoscopy. In addition, there's one study that looked at all bleeding ulcers in Denmark, and that also raised the possibility that if you scope people too soon within the first six or 12 hours, there's a possibility you could be increasing mortality. So the concept I think we and others are coming to is, yes, we should scope them within 24 hours, but rushing them right away to endoscopy before at least initiating appropriate volume resuscitation and paying attention to other active comorbidities may actually be doing a disservice. So you don't want to rush too soon. I will say that's interesting because in the trauma literature, there's a suggestion that in the hemorrhagic shock patient due to trauma, that you do actually not even want to resuscitate them. Um, You can have lower blood pressure targets, not overly resuscitate, and get them right in to attempt hemostatic intervention. But it's not clear that in the general patient with GI bleeding, that is is applicable. Well, that's really interesting observation and and distinction between these two types of patients and uh, also the evolution of our thinking. So it's sort of like the pendulum has come back a little bit. We still got to get in there, but we don't necessarily need to move heaven and earth to scope somebody within an hour of showing up in an emergency department. Okay, so let's say we now have gotten in with an endoscope and the next part of the guideline addresses all the different things that can happen in there. And boy, again, each one of these is a whole lecture unto itself, but let's just say we see an inherent clot. And of course, there's been a lot of debate, frankly, over the years about what to do with the adherent clot. Uh, And the options typically are wash it vigorously. And if it stays on, let it be. It's there for a reason you know, a millennia of evolution, put a clot there and it's doing a good job and we might not be able to do any better than that. Or why don't we get out a a snare and guillotine that thing right off, you know, tear it off and see what we're dealing with underneath it and, uh, and treat it. So where did you guys fall on this decision? Well, this is an example of evidence being difficult to reconcile. When you do a meta-analysis, there is not evidence that doing endoscopic therapy is beneficial in ulcers with adherent clots. But the studies are heterogeneous, meaning some suggest there might be benefit and others don't. So this is one that we felt we could not reach a recommendation for or against endoscopic therapy because, again, the evidence was so heterogeneous, so variable. So that really means that you can make your choice 
And as Brennan said, my practice to use vigorous irrigation, and if it stays on, not go after it. But it is totally acceptable as well, I think, from the evidence, if you wish, to go after it more aggressively. So this is one where I think the evidence doesn't allow us to say with certainty. And so we basically said we could not reach a recommendation for or against, but we did provide all the information about you know both sides of the picture in yeah. terms of what you could do. Made sense to me. And I think in the end, this is a matter of comfort, endoscopist comfort. Personally, I don't, you know, I, I manage GI bleeders like anyone else does, but it's not my life's work. So I feel I'm a little nervous, to be honest, if I'm going to tear off a clot that's sitting there, looks fine, and I can't vigorously wash it off to get out and guillotine it off. It's there for a reason. So that's my own personal thought. But other people are very aggressive, very comfortable. Don't, don't, doesn't matter to them if there's a spurter underneath that, uh, they'll take care of it. So it's really, I think, personal preference. And that, that's kind of what the guideline says. Absolutely. Okay. Of course, there may not be a clot. There may be some other lesion, let's say a non-bleeding visible vessel or a spurting vessel. They, both of those are going to clearly need treatment. And boy, again, big topic. And typically these, by the way, podcasts are like 20, 25 minutes, but I think today we're going to go a little bit longer because I have a feeling our audience wants to hear these discussion points because they're just so important. The guidelines talk about all the different toys we've got. And when I read through the evidence uh, in the latest guideline on whether to clip, whether to use bipolar coagulation, whether to use APC, powder spray, I was actually struck that very few people use bipolar coagulation anymore, at least in my experience. I trained with it. You know, you helped to develop it uh, and test it. But now everyone uses clips in my experience, maybe not in yours. Uh, but yet, when we look at the evidence for clips, it, it's not really as robust. And there's no evidence that they're any better than bipolar coagulation, as I recall. So maybe you can touch on some of these points I'm bringing up and highlight what our readers should know. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And when we were doing the, these systematic reviews and meta-analysis, again, things like bipolar coagulation, heater probes, some of these others were a little older. And so I think there is more data and stronger data because of that. And there was also, interestingly, sham controlled or, you know, no treatment. Nowadays, it wouldn't be ethical to, let's say, compare clips to nothing. But in the initial period, we actually did compare it to nothing to prove that it worked. Because in the old days, people didn't even think endoscopic therapy might be useful. So I think for those reasons, the data are actually stronger, higher quality for things like bipolar reticulation, heater probe, and interestingly, something that nobody ever uses, but the data are very strong, injection of absolute ethanol. Hmm. There is evidence to support things like CLIPS, argon plasma coagulation, and newer uh, adaptation, uh, soft monopolar electric coagulation. But the evidence, is, as Brennan said, is just lower quality. So for that reason, when you have lower quality evidence, you have to make it a little bit weaker recommendation, not as strong. It's not that we did suggest you could use any of those. It's just we made the point that the evidence was stronger for those first things. In terms of powder spray, I think that's fascinating. And in general, the teaching has been, and prior guidelines have suggested, based primarily on observational data, that it's useful to stop active bleeding. And I want to make the point it should only be used in a patient who has active bleeding. But it is useful. But the suggestion based on observational data is there's a very high rate of recurrent bleeding. And so you would always follow another modality if possible at a later time. But what's fascinating, again, a, a recent study from Hong Kong just published at that time in abstract did suggest that one-time powder spray was quite effective. And for that reason, we did suggest it for actively bleeding lesions. I will say the United States, it's extremely expensive. And for that reason, it may not be the treatment of choice if other devices are available and are effective. But it did appear to be effective in the best randomized control trial that's out there, which was published in abstract form. Yeah, you mentioned, I think it's, uh, it's around $2,500 for a dose. That or, was the or... list price that we checked just before we published this, yes. 
Yeah. The guidelines do point out that there's been some health economic modeling on this, looking at, as I recall, the hemostatic powder spray as a second line agent, maybe not first line. Uh, and it might be cost effective if it's used as a second line uh, cleanup or what, what's, what do we know about that? Right. I think, I think that was Alan's paper, but basically you're right. It suggested that standard endoscopic therapy followed by the powder spray of the standard therapy failed was the dominant strategy in that analysis. That is, it was more effective and less costly. I see. Okay. So to be determined, um, particularly if the price can fall, whether it's more healthy economically advantageous, separate from the clinical benefits. Right. So um, I think that's important. And we're still waiting. I, we still would like more data to prove that it really doesn't have a high rebleeding rate, but the best randomized trial did not note that, interestingly, although observational studies did. So what's your practice? Do you use uh, hemospray? In general, at our location, we only use it in certain situations because of the cost, frankly. Okay. We're kind of wrapping up. Again, there's a lot more to discuss, but I do want to talk about the updates on use of proton pump inhibitors after endoscopy. So now we've achieved hemostasis successfully, hopefully, with one of these different modalities. One modality, by the way, we shouldn't use is epinephrine alone. I want to make that point, right? I assume that's still Absolutely. correct, right? Correct. Okay. Strong recommendation not to use it alone. Right. Pretty obvious point. I don't know many people who do that anymore, but the guidelines do indicate that. So hemostasis has been achieved. And in the past, we were always, at least I always learned, boy, you better use intravenous continuous infusion PPI because the whole point of the intravenous infusion is to avoid those sort of peaks and troughs and in intragastric pH where the clot could lice as the pH starts to fall again. And that was the argument for this continuous infusion but now we've kind of realized maybe we don't need to always use IV, that PO PPIs may also be acceptable. What do the guidelines say on this? And, and if we're going to dose with PO, how should we be doing it? So I think this is important. I think this is something a little bit different in our guideline. And I, I think I'm proud how we went through this. And we, we again conducted new systematic review and analysis with definitely new information available in this guideline. So we ended up recommending that certainly high-dose PPI should be given, but that it could be given continuously or intermittently for three days after the endoscopic therapy was done. And what we found is we identified eight randomized comparisons of high-dose PPI versus placebo. And for high-dose PPI, we define that as at least 80 milligrams a day for at least three days. And basically what we found is there was a significant reduction in not only further bleeding, but in mortality. And the data were really quite high quality, which was important. And what we did is when we did a subgroup analysis, which is really to see, is the treatment effect similar whether you give it continuously or intermittently as compared to placebo or no treatment, we found that the reduction was virtually identical, whether it was given continuously or intermittently. Based on that, we did conclude that it was okay to give it intermittently as well as continuously. Now, as Brennan noted, if you give it continuously, the data are very strong. All the studies gave 80 milligram bolus followed by eight milligram per hour infusion. Unfortunately, the data for the intermittent therapy is all over the place in the sense that different studies had different dosing regimens. So we can't tell you exactly what to do. There is no one regimen that's said to be better. What we ended up recommending or suggesting was probably giving an 80 milligram bolus and then following it by 40 milligrams two to four times a day. And I typically would do it three times a day just to be sure. And that can even be given orally you know, once the patient is able to take liquids at least. Right. So that's been evolving. And another topic that has come up is what about good old fashioned H2 blockers? Is there any evidence that we can still use H2 blockers, which are cheaper or is that not even really an issue anymore? 
Well, we did actually look specifically at PPIs versus H2 blockers. And in much the same way, there were a good number of randomized controlled trials. And what we found is that there was also significant benefit of the high-dose PPI versus H2 receptor antagonist therapy in this population. Again, the benefits were significant for further bleeding, and the reductions were similar whether you used continuous infusion or intermittent PPI. Mm -hmm. I'm cognizant of our time here and also that there's a lot more to discuss, but what I'm going to recommend at this point is that our listeners go and pull this article up and take a close look because we've just sort of scratched the surface. And I want to thank you, Lauren, for a really invigorating discussion of the latest and greatest on upper GI bleeding. I can think of no one in the world better than you to lead this guideline and to participate in this, this podcast today. So again, on behalf of the college and our editors and all the members, I want to really thank you and your co-authors for putting together just an outstanding, very readable and really relevant guideline for our, our GI community. Well, thanks very much, Brendan. I enjoyed being here today. And again, I thank you on behalf of my co-authors who were just great to work with. And with that, we will end this month's podcast. Again, signing off, this is Brennan Spiegel, co-editor-in-chief, American Journal of Gastroenterology. And I look forward to talking with you next time. Be safe and be well.